Now, friends, when we come here to the seventh chapter of Daniel, we've actually come into an altogether new and different section of this book. The first six chapters, as we've indicated before, contain the historic night with prophetic light. That's the first six chapters. Now we've come in the last six chapters, beginning here with chapter 7, prophetic light in the historic night. Whereas in the first section, the emphasis was upon the historical. The emphasis now will be upon the prophetic, but with a historical background. And probably I ought to say that chapter 7 is Daniel's vision of the four beasts concerning the four kingdoms of the times of the Gentiles. Now, this covers the same period and the same kingdoms that the image dream of Nebuchadnezzar covered. We'll see that as we get into it. Then in chapter 8, we'll see Daniel's vision of the ram and he-goat, another little horn. And then in chapter 9, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks, and then so on. We'll mention each chapter heading as we get to it. Now, as we come here to chapter 7, we have Daniel's vision of the four beasts. And this man, Daniel, is given several visions of these four beasts that are quite remarkable. Now, in this section, you will find that Daniel had these visions at different periods, beginning actually with the vision here of chapter 7 in the first year of Belshazzar, and chapter 8 in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, and then on down to the third year, chapter 10, and the third year of Cyrus, 11 and 12, and the first year of Darius, so that these visions were not recorded in the historical section. Daniel now has gathered together these visions that are all prophetic and is presenting them to us. Now, we said when we were looking at that great image, multimetallic image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, that the background of it was just simply this. This man, apparently a very intelligent man, but as we saw, had an abnormality. Well, he had bats in his belfry, just to put it very frankly, and he went off of his rocker at times, but yet a very brilliant man. Why, he found himself suddenly elevated to be world ruler, the first great world ruler. He had territory on three continents. He was the one that took Egypt, and also he had territory in Europe. What a tremendous empire he had built, and it was the great empire of that day. Now, he wondered about the future, what's going to happen to it. And so Daniel, probably, as we indicated, he dreamed the same dream, and God gave him the interpretation of it. Now, there were four different kinds of metal in that image. Not five, but four different kinds of metal. Now we're going to have four beasts brought before us. Daniel dreamed of these four beasts. And there was the lion, the bear, the panther, or the leopard, and then that composite beast. It's been called a nondescript beast. But we'll say something about it when we get to it. It certainly is a wild-looking 
animal never has been seen on land nor see her in the air. It just doesn't exist as a real beast. And we'll see why it was given like that. And by the way, that's quite a dream to have in one night. After you've had visions and dreams like that, I don't think Daniel slept much that night. In other words, he got a better night's sleep in the lion's den than he did the night that he had this. Now, what is the background of this? Well, I think it's quite obvious that Daniel, after he was given the vision of the image and the four metals and four great world powers, he's puzzled because he had been taught as a good follower of the Old Testament up to his time that he had before him the great covenant God had made with David, that one was coming from his line that would be a world ruler. And now there are four kingdoms that are put before him. And how does God's plan and program with David of raising up a world ruler, how's that going to fit into this? And the rest of the book of Daniel is going to be used to answer that, friends. And that's the reason this section is so important. It gives the world history, it's pre-written here, pretty much. And now for 2,500 years, it's been followed, and been followed right down to the minutest detail, as we shall see. Now, God speaks to Daniel to satisfy his heart relative to this. He needs a confirmation, and he needs an explanation. And so in this image vision, we have the outward splendor and glory of the kingdoms. And that's the way that they appeared to Nebuchadnezzar. That would be the thing that would attract his attention. But now God lets Daniel in on the inward character and the true nature of these kingdoms. And what are they? Well, they're like wild beasts, carnivorous in nature and destructive and killers, every one of them. Now, the four beasts, of course, correspond to the four metals in the image. And I think that uh, quotation from Gibbon at this point is very apropos. I'm quoting now, "...the four empires are clearly delineated, and the invincible armies of the Romans described with as much clearness in the prophecies of Daniel, as in the histories of Justin and Diodorus. And by the way, Gibbon was not a Christian by any means. And yet, reading the book of Daniel and studying it, he could come to the conclusion that he did. Now, let's look at the visions that Daniel had. Verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Now, you see, this takes us back to the first year of Belshazzar. Now, that's the time that he was given this vision, and that was during the time that the head of gold was ruling in the world. Daniel is puzzled. How does this fit in with God's plan and purpose with the line of David? and the establishing of God's kingdom upon the earth. Daniel can't, at this time, he can't understand why there must be four kingdoms. Well, 
He's going to be given a great deal more detail now. And this is in the first year of Belshazzar. And that was toward the end of the time of the head of gold. Now, not only that, but these visions suggest that the first three beasts that are given, they were in the first vision, and the second vision concerned the fourth beast only, and the third vision was the scene in heaven that is given to him. So that there actually are three visions that we have here. We're also told in this first verse that he wrote the dream. Daniel was engaged in writing during this time. Now, verse 2, Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. Now, the four winds that apparently broke violently upon the sea, and that's the Mediterranean Sea, for that's the word given to it. And the winds, of course, that speaks of agitation, propaganda, public opinion, and disturbance. And the sea suggests the masses, the mob, and the peoples of the Gentiles. Now, you find that in the 13th chapter of Matthew, Revelation 13, 1, that that beast came up out of the sea, and Isaiah has it in Isaiah 57, 20. Let me just read Revelation 17, verse 1, and then 15. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, talk with me, saying to me, Come hither, I'll show unto thee the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters, that is, upon the Gentile nations. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the harlot sitteth, are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. You see, it's this conglomerate population of Gentiles throughout the world. Now, customarily, the wind blows from only one direction at a time. But here it's a tornado of great violence with the wind coming from all directions. Now, it refers not only to the disturbed conditions out of which these four nations arose, but particularly to the last stage of the fourth kingdom. And we'll see that when we get to it. And that is probably where we are today. We are very close, apparently, to the time when the Roman Empire will be brought back together again. It still exists. It lives in Italy, France, Germany, Spain, all the nations there of Europe that were in the Roman Empire. And all it needs is somebody to put it back together again. We apparently are near that period. How near? I do not think we even ought to speculate about it. And now we find here that these nations now are going to be brought back together. And we find with all of their different ideologies and forms of government and viewpoints, why they're going to be brought together. And I think we ought to call attention to the deadly parallel of the circumstances herein stated with our modern world situation. And that's the reason I say that apparently we're drawing toward the end of the age. Now, the entire continents are awakening today, and they're all demanding a place in the sun. People who have had a primitive civilization 
for centuries have been suddenly catapulted into the jet age. Radios and missiles have changed the thinking of the masses. New ideologies have captured their minds. And our disturbed world is desperately trying to avoid World War III right now. I wonder if you've discovered today, friend, as you listen to radio and look at TV, that you're being brainwashed all kinds of propagandas being given to us today. I don't mind confessing, this program, I'm geared to giving out propaganda. You know what that propaganda is? The Word of God. And I wish I could brainwash every one of you and make you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm engaged in that. And every person, radio and TV's brainwashing us. We hear today so much about I was very much amused where I was speaking in a church. And they had the youth choir sing one night. You've always got to have that these days. They weren't very good. The boy leading them was a real hippie. He had on the dirtiest pair of pants I think I've seen. If he'd taken them off, they would have stood up just like he was in them. And he had on a dirty sweater, and he had shaggy hair. And he said they were going to sing a number that shows that Young people have freedom. He was an affable, roly-poly, fat boy. And I was talking to him afterward, and I said, you mentioned the fact that you're free today. I said, I judge that freedom manifests itself in your dress. Oh, yes, he said. I said, you know, it's interesting to me that I've been all the way across this country. I've been into Canada. I've been down to Florida. I've been in New England. I've been up in the Northwest. And I've been to Europe. And I'd been to South America. And I said, let me say this to you. Did you know that everywhere I've been that there are young people that are dressed just like you? I said, what kind of freedom is that when all of you dress alike? Why doesn't one of you get your hair cut, get cleaned up, be different? And I said, you would be different if you did. I said, that would be freedom. You have no freedom. You have to show it by dressing like you did. And if you didn't, You wouldn't be accepted. You know, it's interesting. He's been brainwashed. He's been made to believe that if you have long hair, that that means freedom. And if you wear dirty pants, that means you got freedom. All I could see is it means you just got long, straggly, ugly-looking hair, and all you've got is a pair of dirty pants. And no freedom in the pants whatsoever. We are living in a day when brainwashing is taking place. The masses are disturbed, and they're being fed propaganda. The little horn of this chapter we're going to see is going to succeed in view of the fact that he has a mouth speaking great things. He's going to sell himself to the world when he appears. He'll be Satan's man. The Lord Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name. You rejected me. You'd not receive me. But if one comes in his own name, you will receive him. And today, humanism is glorifying mankind everywhere. They glorify public officials, how wonderful they are. They are glorifying the movie world, actors. They glorify each other, of course. And they've got control of the medium, and they have made the theater today respectable, whereas the theater was what brought in gross immorality into the Greek world. Many of the Greek writers made it clear 
that the theater corrupted the morals of the Greeks. That's happening today. You're being brainwashed, friends. <laughs> when I listen to some of these young people talk about their freedom, and they go down a certain line and hand out a certain line, my friend, that's no freedom at all. You've just got a bunch of brainwashed people. And I tell you very candidly, I think we'd be better off if we got brainwashed with the Word of God. This is a frightful picture that's presented here, this disturbed scene that he talks about. Now, I think I ought to call attention to that parallel here with present circumstances. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying what we see today is the fulfillment of prophecy. I'm just saying the wind's beginning to blow. That's all. It may be a pretty long storm. Now, will you notice, verse 3, here's the vision. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now, each is different. The four beasts are here, the lion, the bear, the panther, and the beast with ten horns. Now, I never saw a beast with ten horns, except here. These represent kingdoms formed out of many peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations. It's been true of all of them. Now, verse 4. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. It was lifted up from the earth, made stand upon the feet as a man. A man's heart was given to it. Now, the lion with eagle's wings represents Babylon in particular. King Nebuchadnezzar is intended as... Verse 17 declares that the beast represents the four kings. We'll see that when we get to it. Now, it's a lion that had eagle's wings. And that's an unusual lion, by the way. Now, the eagle's wings, and we'll see again when we come to the panther that we've got more wings there than here. But it obviously denotes the ability that the nation had of moving an army speedily. And that has been the secret of any great world power. It was Nathan Bedford Forrest who was asked about how to win battles, and he was pretty good at it. He said, the one that gets there the firstest with the mostest is the one that's going to win. And he demonstrated it in his method during the Civil War. Now we find that was the ability of Nebuchadnezzar. He had an ability of moving an army speedily. And it was the thing that brought him to world power. Later on, you'll find out it was the secret of Alexander the Great. And it was also the secret of the Caesars. It was the secret, certainly, of Napoleon. He had that ability of moving an army speedily. And it was used, of course... In World War I, the coming in of the airplane for the first time. And then, of course, World War II was won through the air, largely. It will probably be the determining factor in the future. The one that can move the quickest with the greatest power will be the world ruler always. And that was true of Babylon at the very beginning. And we'll see again the wings, and we'll have more to say about it. Now, the lion was the symbol of Babylon. I have a slide I use when I give an illustrated message on this, and it was taken at the ruins of Babylon 
they found a lion there, and it was on a pedestal. And they have taken away the debris all around it, and there it stands. It was the thing that represents the nation. I've been to Great Britain, and I always enjoy going in that area where the Parliament building is, 10 Downing Street and Westminster Abbey and Scotland Yard. And you see those great lions there. They represent the British Empire. Of course, those are toothless old lions today. But the lion represented the Babylonian Empire. And we're speaking about that. Now we're told here the wings were plucked when Gabrias moved his army underneath the walls of Babylon. I tell you, he took off the wings because the movement of the army, and apparently at that time, the army was away from Babylon proper. And as a result, why, they couldn't get back quick enough. The wings were pulled. And now, we are told, it was made stand on its feet like a man. Well, it was the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar when he you remember, driven from man, as we've seen. And now it says a man's heart was given to it. And I think that refers to his conversion. I think that he came to know the living and true God. And then we have here the lion corresponds, therefore, to the head of gold. And that great city of Babylon and that great nation of Babylon lies in dust and debris over there today. But even in that, their glory still moves out. They've excavated the walls. It was a great city, and the canal was brought through the city. It was built down there on the plain. And one of the wonders of the ancient world was there. The hanging gardens of Babylon were there. You see one of the kings married a hillbilly girl, and that's down on the plain there. It's flat, just like West Texas, and she was homesick. And it's a case now of the mountain coming to Muhammad because he built her a mountain inside the city. It was a thing of beauty. Hanging gardens of Babylon. And there was the great ziggurat that was there, evidently patterned after the Tower of Babel, made of brick. And around it was like a corkscrew. There was a runway that went to the top, altar on top where human sacrifices were offered. And Babylon had inside baths, friends, bathtubs. They had brass plumbing, if you please. It's all been discovered today, just as the Romans had. And they had a library that was tremendous. They had advanced in many fields of science. They had a postal service where they got the mail out all over the empire. And I'm of the opinion they moved about as fast as we're moving it today. And they didn't have jet planes, but they got the mail out in that day. Babylon was an advanced civilization at this particular time. And whereas our ancestors, at least mine, were very primitive, backward people at this time. This was a great civilized nation. It was the head of gold. It's the lion, and it was well protected with this wall, 300 feet high, and four chariots could go abreast around that wall, regular freeway. A great city, a city of beauty, and it went down, you see. Now the bear here, you'll notice in verse 5, "...and behold another beast, a second like to a bear." 
and it raised up itself on one side, had three ribs in the mouth between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now the bear represents media Persian. It corresponds to the arms of silver. The bear went up on one side, then on the other. You see, it was the median arm of silver that came out first and punched Babylon right in the nose. Then the Persian came through with a right uppercut. And I want to tell you, that took over Egypt and the rest of the world. And so that the bear goes on one side, the median side, then on the Persian side. And the three ribs in the mouth are the three kingdoms that constituted it, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And there's no wings on the bear. Why? Because it was told to arise, devour much flesh. And like a great lumbering and rumbling bear, the great army of the media Persians moved. Why, they'd even take their families with them. And it was Xerxes who led a million men, 300 ships against Greece. And he was defeated at Thermopylae. His fleet was destroyed by a storm. And this man, Xerxes, that had led this million men, came back a defeated man because God didn't intend the East to control the West during this particular period. Now we come to the third, the panther. Now the panther is the Greco-Macedonian Empire. That's in verse 6 here of Daniel 7. After this, I beheld and lo another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the better word is leopard here, you'll notice. Or rather, I should say the leopard here is probably a panther. A panther which leaps with suddenness upon its helpless prey. And that represented the Greco-Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great. Now, the four wings, that further accentuates the ability of Alexander to move his army with a rapidity that would make Nebuchadnezzar look like he was on a slow train through Arkansas. Now, we are living in a day when there's a missile race. Why? Because the one who gets there, the fastest with the mostest, he's the one that's going to win and always does. Nathan Bedford Forrest was a great cavalry general in the Civil War for the South. And his entire secret was to move overnight. He would have a forced march overnight. And by so doing, he was able to take the enemy by surprise. Now, this is an unusual panther or leopard, whichever you want to call it, has four heads. Now, when Alexander the Great died, died a young man in his 30s, 33, he would been out on a drunken orgy. Isn't it interesting? Babylon went down in drunkenness, and so did Alexander. His empire went down the same way. We're going to look at that again, by the way. I think we're going down, that kind of a nation. We're living in a day when the social drink is accepted today. We don't want kids smoking marijuana, but we don't mind them taking a drink when they become adults. Today, that would be 18 years of age. Now, these four heads depict, therefore, 
the way that the four generals of Alexander the Great divided that world empire that he'd carved out because each one of them knew he wasn't able to do it. Cassander, he took Macedonia and Greece. And Lysimachus, he took Asia Minor, what we know today is Asia Minor. And Seleucus took Syria. And out of that line came the little horn of the next chapter, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, that wrought such havoc in Jerusalem with the temple. And then Ptolemy, he took Egypt. And, of course, Cleopatra came from that line. Now, friends, we are looking now at the fourth beast that Daniel saw in his dream. Here is the second vision that he had. And it's a vision of a nondescript beast with ten horns. And now this represents the Roman Empire, just as the legs of iron had in the image. But now let me read verse 7. After this, that is, after he'd had the vision of the other three beasts, I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong, exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, I'm going to wait till we get to the interpretation to go into all of the detail, the explanation We'll get to this as in verse 19. And we're going to find out that more attention is given to the fourth beast than to all the other three put together. And the interpretation is important. Now, it's important for us because this particular section now relates to where we are today. We are living in the time of the fourth beast. And apparently, we're living in the time when the toes and the horns are beginning to manifest themselves. And we're going to look at that in detail, but we want to get the explanation that the Spirit of God has given to us, and that'll deliver us from speculation. But now let's look at this nondescript beast. Now, the fourth beast is altogether different from the others, and he's kept separate from the others because all the other beasts have counterparts in the jungle and in zoos today. I'm sure all of us have seen a lion. All of us have seen a bear. All of us have seen a leopard or a panther. But you never saw this beast on land or sea or in the air. This beast here is really an unusual beast. And after you've had a night of dreaming about beasts like all of these, and especially this one, I don't think an aspirin tablet or any of these other sleeping pills would do you a bit of good. I think you're going to be awake the rest of the night. Now, will you notice what it says about it? It says, a fourth beast, it was dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. Now, this beast which represents the Roman Empire, is characterized by strength, and it incited dread and terror. 
it bore no resemblance to any beast that preceded it. Now, it had iron teeth, and that immediately, I think, identifies it with the legs of iron, which we've already seen was the Roman Empire. Now, the iron heel of Rome was on the neck of this world for one millennium. And a great deal has been said about the Roman Empire. Even to this day, it amazes historians. And it was Gibbon that made this statement. And you must understand, Gibbon was not a Christian as we understand it. I'm reading or quoting Gibbon now. The empire of the Romans filled the world. And when the empire fell into the hands of a single person, the world became a safe and dreary prison for his enemies. To resist was fatal, and it was impossible to fly. Now, another writer, Dr. Robert Culver, who has a very fine book on Daniel, he has made this statement, and I'm quoting him now, two millennia ago. Rome gave the world the ecumenical unity which the League of Nations and the United Nations organizations have sought to give in our time. The modern attempts are not original at all, as many of our contemporaries suppose, but are revivals of the ancient Roman ideal which never since the time of Augustus Caesar has been wholly lost. You see, the Roman Empire just simply fell apart. And it is that way today. Rome lives on. It lives in France, in Italy, in Germany, in Spain, in Austria. It lives on those nations that border the Mediterranean, in North Africa. You see, all of those were part of the Roman Empire. And no one overcame the Roman Empire. It just fell apart into these different nations. Now, I want you to notice that this beast had ten horns, and that made it unusual. Well, when was the last time you saw a beast that had ten horns? Now, obviously, those ten horns correspond to the feet of the image with the ten toes. And the Emphasis is not upon the origin of this empire, but rather upon the end time, the period of the ten horns. And there'll be more attention. It will be directed by the Spirit of God in giving us the interpretation than all the rest put together. And it's made further important to us because it's yet unfulfilled. Apparently, we're living in some period toward the end time. And the visions of the four beasts have been fulfilled. That is, already three-fourths of this prophecy has been literally fulfilled. And there remains for the future just the time of the ten horn. Because even Rome has appeared and fell apart and will come back together in ten kingdoms and be put together by the one we've labeled the Antichrist. We didn't label it. The Word of God does that. Notice in verse 8 now of chapter 7 what Daniel says. He says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up 
among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. You see, our attention now is directed to the ten horns. And notice, they do not represent a fifth kingdom. They grow out of the head of the fourth beast. And they're the last development of the fourth beast. You see, in the toes, in the toes you have iron and clay. The iron is still there. Rome is still there. But clay, the weakness is there. And I think that very candidly, we see today that type of a weakness in a democracy. I think that you have the iron with autocratic rule of one man, and then you have the clay, the mob, the crowd, democracy. And we feel that democracy is great stuff. And we talk today about the freedom that we have, and thank God we do have freedom. But very frankly, it's almost a joke today to talk about how important John Q. Public is. Now, you and I are not very important if you really want to know the truth. Now, every now and then when some man's running for office, time for election, all the politicians, they come out, get on TV, and tell you and me how important we are and how wonderful we are, how educated we are, and how knowledgeable we are. We are really, and maybe I ought not to include you, but I find my little crowd, we're rather stupid. (laughs) We think that our vote counts. And to begin with, we don't have a chance of choosing who's going to be president of the United States. They put up two men. I didn't pick either one of them. I'll be very frank with you today. Ever since I was a young fellow, 21 years old, I have never voted for the man I wanted to vote for. He wasn't running. (laughs) I always had to vote against the man. That's the way I've always voted. But they tell me how important I am. I've had very little to do with choosing anybody. And I find out that these different lobbies, oh, they move. And somebody's making choices that I have nothing to do with. You see, the politician has to... If he's going to stay in office, he's got to appeal to this minority group, and he appeals to that minority group and this minority group, and he gives them all that they want. And when he does, there's not much left for me. And I have a notion, not much left for you. I have to pay high taxes. Don't misunderstand. I'm not crying. I thank God for the liberty I had. But friends, as I said last time, I think we've been brainwashed, if you want to know the truth. And God's ideal government is never democracy. It is the worst kind of a dictatorship. And when I say worst, I mean by that it is a real dictatorship. When Jesus Christ rules on this earth, friends, you know, he's not going to ask you or anybody else what they want done. He's going to do it. He's going to make the choice. This earth's going to be run according to the way he wants to run it not the way you and I want to run it. And that's one reason that you and I better be conformed to his image. Because it's going to be very uncomfortable to have somebody ruling like that, a dictator, 
and he's just doing it the way he wants to do it. And he's not asking us. And if we're in rebellion against him, it's not going to be pleasant. That's the reason that he's going to put out of his kingdom everything that offends. We're to bow to him today. And that's God's ideal form of government. It's terrible, as we read here about both Gibbon and Dr. Culver. They said when this Roman government fell into the hands of one man, it was, oh, it was terrible. And that's the reason that Mary and Joseph, they had to go down to Bethlehem to enroll, and Jesus is born out there in a stable. I thank God it was private, but it was out of that inn. But she shouldn't have been traveling. But after all, what does Caesar Augustus care about babies? All he's interested in babies is that they grow up to be men, be in his army. That's all he's concerned about, and all he's interested in is taxes. And may I say, I don't think things have changed very much since then. Man's vaunted boasts today has no foundation, in fact, at all. And Rome still lives. It just fell apart. And now somebody's got to get these horns and put them back together again. And he says there was a horn that came along. Now, Rome fell apart because of internal corruption and rottenness and drunkenness. We're going to come back to that again, by the way. Now, all three of these great world empires, in fact, all four of them went down because of drunkenness. And today, why we say drugs are a problem, but liquor is legal, huh? Who are we kidding? Have you been brainwashed today? How many people they consider a social drink? There's nothing wrong with that. My friend, there are nine million alcoholics that are trying to hold jobs today. That's part of our problem in this country right now. That doesn't include the number of women that are drunks today. And you can't get those figures because... That's kept undercover, you see, until she either commits suicide or has to be put in a mental institution. That's the picture of America in this dark hour in which we live. Now, will you notice that Rome fell apart? And I've already given this, but let me give it again. Rome was like Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's men and all the king's horses, they can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Interesting, isn't it, that they're looking for a man to put it back together again. Now, what happened to Rome? Rome's going to be put together again. It was the historian, the German historian Hoffmann, who wrote this. And will you listen to him? I'm quoting. When Germans and Slavs advanced partly into Roman ground, anyhow into the historical position of the Roman Empire, their princes intermarried with Roman families. Charlemagne was descended from a Roman house. Almost at the same time, the German Emperor Otho II and the Russian Grand Prince Vladimir intermarried with daughters of the East Roman Emperor. This was characteristic for the relation of the emigrating nations to Rome. 
they did not found a new kingdom, but continued the Roman. And so it continues to the end of all earthly power until its final ramification in the ten kingdoms to attempt now to mark out these would be as misplaced as to fix the coming of Christ with which they stand connected tomorrow or the next day. Now, do you notice here that he says another little horn? And that becomes the key to the entire situation. Ten kingdoms. I do not know what they are. No point in identifying them. But you see, Rome just went into these empires and it fell apart. And there's going to come now little horn apart from these, and he's going to take over. Now I'm reading verse 9, and we have the visions of the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven. Verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were placed, that is, cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool, his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Now you see the scene now shifts to heaven, where the throne of God is revealed. And we believe that this is the same scene that's described in the fourth chapter of Revelation and also in the fifth chapter. It's the preparation for the judgment of the great tribulation and the second coming of Christ to the earth. He says, I beheld till the thrones were placed. Now, that corresponds to Revelation 4.4, because while in Revelation John gives the number of the elders and other details, Daniel is not concerned with such, because he's not speaking of the church. His subject does not include the church and its future at all. Now, the ancient of days is the eternal God. Garment as white as snow, that refers to the attributes of holiness and righteousness of God. And his hair of his head is like pure wool. That speaks of his infinite wisdom and his eternity. And the throne was like the fiery flame. That speaks of judgment. And the wheels as burning fire. That speaks of the resistless energy and restless power of God. We saw that in Ezekiel, the first chapter, that God is moving forward to the accomplishment of his purpose. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. The books were open. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment, which occurs after the millennium. It's the setting for the judgment of the great tribulation and the return of Christ to establish the millennial kingdom here upon the earth. You'll see that in Revelation 5, if you read that chapter. And I'm not taking time now for that. We're not studying that. Verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. You see, God is setting the judgment scene in heaven to determine who's going to enter the kingdom on earth. And the little horn is blaspheming and boasting the loudest. However, his judgment is fixed and his kingdom is doomed. The emphasis on this kingdom 
it's represented by the last beast, is not on its beginning, but we're at the end of it. And the appearance of that little horn is shortly before Christ comes to judge living nations and individuals. I think this period equates with the Great Tribulation period. Now, verse 12, as concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, these first three beasts were destroyed. The ideology and philosophy of the kingdoms they represent apparently lives on and will be manifested in the Great Tribulation period. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions... Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, this is the Son of God in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told concerning him, he said himself in Mark fourteen sixty one. again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's exactly what Daniel had said. And then again in Luke 1, 31, He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the Son of God in heaven He's invested with the authority to take the kingdoms of this world from the Gentiles and establish his kingdom. And the Lord Jesus made reference to that, that he would be coming with great power and coming in the clouds of heaven to establish his kingdom upon this earth. And that's what the angel had said concerning him. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, so that what we have here is the very clear-cut statement that the Lord Jesus is that stone cut out without hands that smites the image, and he will establish his kingdom here upon this earth. Now, you find that all the way through the Word of God. For instance, way back in the second psalm, where he says in verse 7 of the second psalm, I'll declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. Now, he's begotten him from the dead. has nothing to do with Bethlehem. It's perfect nonsense. Go over to the 13th chapter of book of Acts, verse 33, and you'll find Paul interpreting that. It refers to the resurrection. Now he says, verse 8 of Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He's going to take over the kingdom. How will he do it? Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, when he comes to the earth, the millennium will not be there waiting for him. He's going to put out all the rebellion, break it up, remove them, and then... Those that are obedient will enter the kingdom. Now, we have that in verse 14 now of Daniel 7. I'm reading. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Now, you see, this all prepares the way for the coming of Christ and the smashing of the image by the stone cut out without hands, and an everlasting dominion is to be established here upon this earth. And you have that in the 19th chapter of Revelation. And somebody says, well, there it speaks of the millennium, a thousand years. Well, friends, at the end of the thousand years, which is a test period with him ruling, there will be a brief moment of rebellion against him when Satan's released for a brief season. But the kingdom's going right on into eternity. And he makes that very clear. Now we are told here, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, the thousand-year kingdom, you see, is but a phase of the everlasting kingdom. The steps are outlined, I think, clearly in Revelation 20. Christ reigns a thousand years on the earth under heavenly conditions. After this period, Satan's release. The unregenerate human heart, still in rebellion against God, rallies to Satan's leadership, and he assembles them to make war against Christ. And Satan and the rebellious betrayers are cast into the lake of fire. The lost dead are raised for judgment before the great white throne. Now, after this, the eternal aspect of the kingdom comes into purview. Then the location of this kingdom is on earth. And you may be sure of that. I think that is something that the Word of God makes very, very clear. Maybe I ought to turn and pick up a scripture on this. I didn't intend to do this. I'm looking for the prophecy, Micah 4, 2. Notice this, "...and many nations shall come." And say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That is very clear, I think, that the kingdom is to be here upon this earth. Now, I want to keep moving here because... We have now in verses 15 through 18 the definition of the four beasts. Now, this will confirm what we've said. I'm reading now verses 15 and 16. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things." Now, as the dream of the image had troubled Nebuchadnezzar, this vision, of course, disturbs Daniel. And he approaches here one of the heavenly creatures for an explanation. Now, verse 17, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Now, you see, four kings with four kingdoms. These four beasts are not only kingdoms, but kings, you see. Nebuchadnezzar, together with his kingdom of Babylon, was represented by the head of gold and the two-winged lion. And Alexander the Great, synonymous with the Greco-Macedonian Empire, is depicted by both the sides of brass and a panther. 
These wild beasts of prey with their carnivorous and voracious natures are representative of the character of both the king and the kingdom. Verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, the identity of the saints is the important factor of this statement. There are five other verses in this chapter that mention them. Verse 21, it says, I beheld the same horn made war with the saints. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints. Verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints. And then verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The identity of the saints is important. These verses here, six verses in all, they mention them. And we find them again in the eighth chapter. Now, will you notice, who are the saints? Immediately, one school of interpretation of prophecy just assumes that they're New Testament saints. I, frankly, am getting a little weary today of such a narrow viewpoint of the saints. Great many people that are even narrower than that. They feel like their denomination or their little group are the only saints that they are. My friend, God has a pretty big family. And in the Old Testament, yet Old Testament saints, the nation Israel were call saints. The Gentiles that came in as proselytes, they were saints of God. And that's a different company than New Testament saints today that are in the church. And don't get the idea that your little group is the only group that's going to be saved, or that even the church is the only one. God saved people before the day of Pentecost. He's going to save them after the rapture. God's in the saving business. It's the church that's failing, not God at all. Now, in Daniel 8:24, we are told here, His power shall be mighty, and not by force of arms and astonishing ways. He shall run, he shall succeed in what he undertakes, he shall destroy mighty opponents. Also, the holy people are the saints. Now, if you go back to Exodus, the 19th chapter, verse 6, you'll be able to identify the saints that I think that are mentioned here. And they happen to be the nation Israel. Here, I'm reading Exodus 19.6. Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, holy nation means saints. You see, the word for saints, actually is the word hagios. And it occurs 200 times in the New Testament, translated 92 times as holy in combination with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, it's used also of believers in the church. They're called saints or holy ones. In the New Testament, saints are the sinners who've been declared righteous because of their faith in Christ. That's Romans 1, 7. And the word is used likewise for Old Testament believers. You have that. It's used for the tribulation saints. Look at Revelation 13:7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. 
And in Daniel, therefore, the saints refer to Israel, yet not to all Israel, but to the believing remnant only, and then to Gentiles that are saved. And here, I think that it refers to them, not to your little crowd or to my little crowd. Now, we have here now the explanation of the fourth beast with the ten horns. And here is where the emphasis is placed. It's where Daniel put the emphasis, God put the emphasis, and we ought to, because we fit in here somewhere. Verse 19 and 20, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron. See, everything here speaks of power and of fierceness. His nails of brass, it devoured, it broke in pieces, it stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were his head, and the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Now, our attention here is directed to this fourth beast, and to the ferocity of the beast, iron teeth, brass nails, and Rome was hated by her captive nation. Hannibal, who was across the Mediterranean in North Africa, he vowed vengeance against her cruel power, and he lived executed, by the way, yet he was finally subdued by Rome. Rome rejected the Son of God, the Savior, through her puppet Pilate, who asked the cynical and contemptuous question of Jesus, what is truth? Rome crucified Jesus and persecuted the church. The ten horns grow out of the beast, denoting a later development, not a separate kingdom. Now, Rome fell apart, as we've already said. And the horns do not grow out of a dead beast, a living beast. Rome lives in the fragmentation of the empire in the many existing nations of Europe and North Africa, including perhaps some in Asia, though I don't think we can identify them. At the time of the end, three of the horns will fall before the little horn, who's dominant in personality, ability, and propaganda, and public opinion. And that little horn is Antichrist, the man of sin. And that's made clear to us in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. And I'll not turn there right now. But that's what Europe needs today, someone to put it back together again. Now it says, verse 21, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints, prevailed against him. Now it should be noted that Rome will again be a world power under Antichrist. We are told in Revelation 13:7, it shall be given unto him, that is Antichrist, the man of sin, to make war with the saints, to overcome them. Power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And you see, the church has been removed. They've been a warlike people. Our ancestors were there in Europe. And for 1,500 years, they've been a warlike people. We still are. You can't go into a city or a small town in this country today, but you don't see a monument to our war dead. I tell you, we fought war. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, one of the paradoxes of this age is that it's the age of pacifism, but not the age of peace. Oh, they care placards today. These bunch of kids carry them around. Peace, peace. 
But you know the Bible says when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. I don't like them carrying banners. And we're not a peaceful people. Wars in our hearts. In history, recorded history, man is engaged in 15,000 wars. And he signed some 8,000 peace treaties. Yet in all that period, he's only enjoyed two to 300 years of true peace. Man is a warlike creature. Now, the Roman Empire is to be put together again. And we're told that he'll put it back together again. And he marches to world power, and he'll become a world ruler. And we're told that he'll blaspheme the God of heaven. That's found in Revelation 13, 6. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. What a picture we have. Now, is that a picture of Europe today? It certainly is. It was Dr. Sears of the University of Oklahoma who after World War II, in fact, it was in 1953, that he went through Europe and he said it's been less than a decade since the close of World War II with all of its death and destruction. But already, he says, ample evidence exists that the peoples of Germany and even France are shopping around for the strong man, type of leader like Hitler or Napoleon, to restore these nations to the grandeur, glory, and prosperity they once knew. And that's Dr. Sears of the University of Oklahoma. And even a man like Bishop Fulton J. Sheen made this statement. He says, the Antichrist will come, disguised as the great humanitarian. He'll talk peace, prosperity, and plenty, not as a means to lead us to God, but as ends in themselves. He will explain guilt away psychologically, make men shrink in shame if their fellow men say they're not broad-minded and liberal. He'll spread the lie that men will never be better until they make society better. My friend, we are being brainwashed today. Wake up! And the world today is moving in the direction when Europe will come together. I do not know how long it is. Great many people say to me, well, don't you think the common market is evidence? Well, certainly it's a move in that direction. That doesn't mean we've come to the end. And then another thing that has happened in Europe is a psychological basis for it. A friend of mine who's spent time in Europe, and right now he's living in Switzerland, he says that the young people of these nations like Italy, France, Germany, they don't like to be called Germans or Italians or French. They like to be called Europeans today. What a psychological basis for the coming of Antichrist. All he'd have to do now is just like ripe fruit hanging on a tree. He could pick it today if he came. But that doesn't mean he is going to come today. He's not going to come until the Lord removes the church from the world. And there's scripture to prove that as we saw in First and Second. Thessalonians. Now will you notice, Daniel's concerned about this. Verse 19, then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. And he wanted to know about it. And he's told, 
Verse 21, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints, prevailed against them. And Rome's going to become a world power. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came, and he's the only one that'll be able to put out Antichrist, only the coming of Christ. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, we're not talking about New Testament saints. This is Old Testament. Just let the Bible say what it wants to say, friends, and don't try to fit it in to your little jigsaw puzzle. Verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Now, that's the kingdom that is coming on this earth today. Rome being brought back together again. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can stop that. Well, we'll have to conclude this chapter next time and then move on into chapter 8. So until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now I read at verse 24, And the ten horns out of the kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Now, the thing that interests us here is that there were ten horns that came out of the beast, and these ten horns are ten kings, and the king represents a kingdom, of course. And then we are told that among these ten kings, another one, that would be eleventh one, will arise. And he's going to be diverse from the first. That is, he'll be different from all those that have come. And he will move to power by subduing three kings. That more or less gives him a majority. And he'll move to world power. He'll become actually the dictator of the entire world. And very candidly, that is the picture that's presented to us in the 13th chapter of Revelation. And verse 7 of Revelation 13, it was given unto him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, just as the Caesars ruled over the world of that day, and we've already seen what Gibbon had to say about that and I'd like to repeat that because it's very important. He says the empire of the Romans filled the world. And when the empire fell into the hands of a single person, the world became a safe and dreary prison for his enemies. To resist was fatal and it was impossible to fly. And that was a picture, an accurate picture. And Gibbon further made it clear what we're talking about here, that there be no guesswork. He says the four empires are clearly delineated, and the invincible armies of the Romans described with as much clearness in the prophecies of Daniel as in the histories of Justin and Diodorus. So that we have before us here this fourth empire, and we're somewhere in it. Now, there will come out of this empire ten kings and they will come back together again, but there will arise one, and he'll be this little horn. 
He'll be this man of sin, the Antichrist, and he's going to rule over the world. He moves to world power. And that'll take place in the Great Tribulation period, a period, we believe, of seven years. Now, notice, though, what verse 25 said. He shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, the little horn is a blasphemer. We find that again in the 13th of Revelation. We are told here, verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And verse 6, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. And one of the characteristics of Antichrist is the fact that he's against God and against Christ. That's what Antichrist means. One of the meanings. The other is, of course, imitate. And I believe the two beasts in the 13th of Revelation represent these two aspects of Antichrist. One against Christ, a blasphemer. The other, a false prophet. He acts like he's a lamb, but he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he attempts to imitate Christ. Now, we're told also he'll wear out the saints. Now, that doesn't mean like some of us preachers do on Sunday morning or Sunday night. We sometimes wear out the saints. But it means literally to afflict the saints, to persecute them. And we're told he's going to do that. You read here in the 12th chapter of Revelation, verses 13 through 17. And then we're told a little horn will change customs and laws. We are going to see that take place. Now, the period of the little horn's reign is of a short duration here. We're told they'll be given into his hand until a time and times, that's two, and the dividing of time. One year, two years, and a half a year. Three and a half years. And it's during the last three and a half years of the great tribulation that he intends or will reign, you see, over the earth. Now, that man is coming. He's going to appear here on the earth someday. There'll be a religious ruler, and he's going to be a false one. And there'll be a political ruler, and he's going to be a false one. This one is going to be a world dictator. Now, verse 26, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume, to destroy it unto the end. Now, the judgment shall set. It reminds us of the scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 where thrones are depicted. It's determined by the one on the central throne and the Lamb who is the executor of the judgment. Also, it is the agreement of all God's created and redeemed intelligences of heaven that the beast must be put down. His dominion must be ended, and he himself must be judged. The judgment shall set. Can't be changed. This judgment continues through the great tribulation, and it's consummated by the return of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, this is the period 
known as the times of the Gentiles. It began back yonder with Nebuchadnezzar. It'll continue until Christ comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, verse 27, "...and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him." Now, this is a reference to the eternal kingdom, which appears first in its millennial aspect in Revelation 20, and it then opens up into eternity. I get a little weary today of these theologians that for years they rejected prophecy. That is, they just didn't study it. They are beginning to do so now, and they like to find fault with the premillennial interpretation of it. And they say, well, now you can see that the millennium is not accurate, that it's an eternal kingdom. Well, the millennium is just a period of testing, just like this period we are in today. It'll be a period of testing, but it leads and eventuates into the eternal kingdom. That's picky, picky when they start talking like that. Now, let me read this here. It says, but when this Antichrist, and I'm beginning to quote a statement of Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, listen to him. But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom, that is, the rest, the hallowed seventh day, and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance in which kingdom the Lord declared that many coming from the east and from the west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, friends, there are those that try to say today that the early church fathers, they were not premillennial. What do you think this man's talking about here? Again, it's rather wearisome to hear these men attempt to try to dissipate and dissolve the millennium, and God's dispensational program for this world by saying the early church fathers. And they try to quote some statement that has no reference to it. Now let me give another quotation, and this is from Philip Schaff. Listen to this. The most striking point in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age is the prominent Chileism, or millenarianism. That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ and glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers. May I say to you, you're in good company today if you believe we're going to have a millennium here on this earth. Now, verse 28. Hitherto is the end of the matter. 
as for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, you see, Daniel did not divulge to his contemporaries the visions and their contents, since they belonged, you see, to the end time. They were disturbing to Daniel, and they made such an impression upon him as to alter his entire outlook. This is something brand new for him. And the study of prophecy in this day is not, therefore, for the selfish gratification of idle curiosity or vain knowledge. Rather, the careful, prayerful study of prophetic Scripture has a transforming effect upon the life. And my friend, if the study of prophecy doesn't change you, then you better study something else. That's the purpose of it. It just makes you argumentative and ugly and want to carry on a debate instead of trying to get out the Word of God then, my friend, there's something radically wrong because the purpose of it is that you and I might be transformed by it, you see.